0: Good to see you this morning. And uh, man, wasn't that great worship? That was awesome, wasn't it? Um, hey, if you're a guest with us today, thank you for being here. Uh, our mission statement is helping people find and follow Jesus, right? So it's, it's all about Jesus. We, you know, we gather on Sunday morning to worship, to serve, to grow together, and to look at God's word. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes And uh, we're going to be freestyling for a few weeks. We're going to be kind of taking a detour away from the book of Moses. Today we find ourselves in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. So pull out your message notes and we're going to be talking about overcoming a critical spirit. Anybody need to grow in this area? Okay, no hands raised. That's okay, right? I mean, we all all need to grow in this area, some more than others. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 7. Verses 1-5, through five. Matthew chapter 7 is, is actually towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what Jesus says. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye... When there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right. Sermon on the Mount. One of Jesus' greatest sermons that he ever delivered. He's in the northern part of Israel overlooking the beautiful Sea of Galilee. The large crowds have gathered to hear Jesus' words. The crowds that day... They were mixed with disciples, uh, followers, learners of Christ, and then you had uh, some religious people, the Pharisees, these religious leaders. Now, the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, you have to rewind and go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus gives us the key to understanding the, the main point, the thing that he is trying to drive home. He's trying to... To, to get this truth to stick into the minds of his hearers. This is what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, strict sect of Judaism. Some people say there were like 6,000 Pharisees during Jesus' time. Their righteousness was External. They never experienced a deep transformational righteousness that only God can bring in someone's life. Here's what they did they modified God's word to suit their own thinking and traditions. Two problems. Number one, they were banking their eternal salvation on their own righteousness. If you want to go to heaven someday, you got to bank eternity and heaven and salvation, not on your righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. That's the only thing that's going to get you to heaven, right? Christ paved the way. Christ died for you, nailed your sins to the cross. And so if, if and we need the righteousness of Christ because we're unworthy, right? But because of his righteousness, we could be, we can move from death to life. We can move from being at war with God to being a friend of God. We can move from being unworthy to, be, to being worthy, accepted, and, and loved by God. And then the second problem is they modified God's word to suit their own thinking and their traditions. Their traditions trumped truth. We see this in our culture. You know, here's what people do. They come to the Bible. If they don't like something, they're like, well, you know what, I, I, don't, think, I, don't, I don't think this is what God's saying. Or, now, God wouldn't say that. Or they, they come to the scriptures with spiritual scissors and they, they want to cut things out of the word. So they, their traditions, their own thinking trumps truth. For the Pharisees, the, the, these man-made scribal traditions replaced the authority of God's word. So the Pharisees were religious. They were self-righteous. They were judgmental. They were critical. And Jesus has a word to say to the Pharisees. Not just 2,000 years ago, but his word applies to us today. God has a word for us today on this subject. Now, it takes us to Matthew 7, verse 1. What does it say? Judge not that you be not judged. Here's point number one. Write this down. Stop criticizing one another. Now, this is a pretty well-known verse, right? It's pretty well-known. Anyone ever had someone quote this verse Judge not, judge not, lest you be judged. And and they they totally rip this verse out of the context, and they use it as a trump card to kind of, you know, lay down to prove their point. Hey, you know, we we really can't speak into people's lives. We really can't call people out of a life of sin. You know, you you really can't say that someone's a sinner. Here's the deal it's misquoted because it's misunderstood. The verse does not mean turn a blind eye to people's sin, right? Or turn a blind eye to shortcomings. As we unpack the the, the passage, you're, you're going to see as we walk through it verse by verse, it really is encouraging us as believers to help other believers with their sin. Because even though you get Saved and you're forgiven, right? The struggle is real. Temptation is real. Right? You're never gonna reach a state of perfection. You know, we're gonna see in a moment that God calls us to carefully and and, and gently help people deal with their sin. Now, now what does this verse mean? Judge not, least you be judged. Well, the word judge in the Greek can mean it has multiple meanings: analyze, evaluate. Condemn and discern. So the context is going to determine the meaning, right? So the word judge in the Greek is a present imperative. It's, it's in the mood of a command. That's what an imperative is. So God is saying, literally, he's saying, based on the Greek, stop judging other people. Stop criticizing other people. Now, easy to say, harder to do, right? Stop being a self-righteous, fault-finding, self-congratulating critic. Now, you ever met someone who was self-righteous? I mean, just oozing, dripping with self-righteousness, right? Those people, they're always pointing out people's flaws and failures. They're severely critical of other people they're quick to judge. They're quick to condemn. They're quick to say, you know what? If your life doesn't match my life, you know something's wrong. Or if you don't hold the same beliefs that I hold, you know, something's wrong with you. They're really good at it. People are so good at being judgmental and, and having a, a spirit, an attitude of condemnation. It's like their spiritual gift. They're good at it. And they want they're going to exercise that gift. They're going to hone in on that gift. They feel like, you know what? God has put them in a position... To be God and to play the Holy Spirit in your life. Beware of those people, right? Because there's only one God and you're not it, right? You can't play God. I can't play God. We can't play the role of judge, right? So, um, you know, when it comes to the church, I think the scriptures are really clear that as a church, we are not to be judgmental towards unbelievers, now, some of you, you, you might, there's going to be a few things I'm going to say. You might be like, oh, I totally disagree. Just let me flesh it out completely before you start saying, well, I don't, I don't know if I agree with you. Non-Christians say to Christians all the time, don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. You're not God. You're not a judge. So, so get off me. And to some degree, non-Christians are right. We are not God. We're not their judge. And sometimes the church, we expect non-Christians to act just like Christians. We expect non-Christians to have the same values that we have. And and as a church, we can't expect that. We can't place that that unreasonable weight upon non-believers. And here's why. How can someone who's a non-believer follow Jesus if they've never met him? This is why our mission statement is helping people find and follow Jesus. Before you can follow him, you have to find him. You have to encounter him. You have to see him as the greatest treasure. Like the man who sold the field, found a treasure, sold the field, sold, sold everything that he had so he could buy the field. Christ is the treasure. And when you when you experience and you come to Christ and you see him as the greatest treasure, then your values, your belief system is going to change. Your heart is going to be transformed. You're going to have an affection, a greater affection for Jesus. So how can someone who is far away from God be changed spiritually if they've never embraced the gospel? When you meet Jesus, he moves in. He steps in. He does a conforming work, a work of sanctification. The goal is to be more like Jesus. That is the goal, Christ-likeness. But if Christ doesn't move in, how can we expect them to be like Jesus? Now, Paul wrote several letters to the church of Corinth. And the church of Corinth was a messed up church. I mean, every sin imaginable was being committed. I mean, it was, it was a very unhealthy um, uh, not a very strong spiritual church. And and so let me give you an example. Chapter 5. It's reported to the Apostle Paul that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. That, that, that he's sleeping with his stepmother. Now, Paul addresses it. Now notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then notice note, he's gonna give a caveat, he's gonna he's gonna give an explanation. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, and and then he gives us his line of reasoning, his logic. Not at all meaning these, all these people, all these categories. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Remember what Jesus said? We are in the world, but we're not of the world, right? We're not going to embrace the the world systems, the, the system of beliefs, but we are in this world. We are on mission for Jesus. Paul goes on. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul is making a a, a contrast between insiders and outsiders. The outsiders who who do not know Jesus, the insiders who do know Jesus. And they bear the name of brother. What that means is they claim to be an authentic believer. Understand me. This is really important. Someone who says, "Oh, yeah I'm a, I'm a Christian, but their lifestyle doesn't bear the fruit. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about someone who is more than just flippantly saying, "Well, yeah, I believe in God." No. they're saying, "Listen, I am your brother, sister in Christ. I am a Christ follower right? They bear the name of brother. And if they're living in sexual morality, greed, idolatry, they're a reviler, you know, they're getting angry, they're, they're a drunk, they're a swindler, they're taking advantage of people. He says, don't even eat with such a one. Now, that's pretty bold. You have to understand first century Jewish culture. If you shared a meal with someone, a meal was, was marked by intimacy. It was, it was a very intimate thing. You, you only shared a meal with someone that you were, you know, uh, friends with. It was a very intimate uh, uh, friendship type thing, common ground, you know, we're, we're in a good relationship. And then notice what he says. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Underline, judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So inside the church, outsiders, insiders. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul is addressing this guy who says, man, I'm a believer, but he's sleeping with a stepmother. Paul's like, man, you need to deal with that. Now, he clarifies what he means earlier, right? He names all the categories. And he says, not, not at all meaning, right, the sexual immoral of this world, Because if that was the case, you would have to exit this world altogether. Christ has left us here for a mission. We are on a mission to help people find Christ. And in order to do that, we got to stay and influence and love. Notice what Paul says. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So you have the insiders, which are Christians. You have the outsiders, which are non-Christians. And it is not our job to police those outside the church. God judges those outside the church. It's very clear. Christians are called to, to love, to serve, to prove to be Christ's followers, to be winsome, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, to redeem the, the time for the days are evil. We have been given the task, and it's, the Great Commission is a, a co-mission, it's a partnership. We are on mission with Jesus, to take the gospel to a lost and hurting world. But the sad thing is, the culture at large, when they, when they look in at the church, non-Christians know more about what the church is against than what the church is for. Don't get me wrong. There are some things that, like, yeah, I'm against some things. Like, I'm, I'm, I have convictions based on God's word. I believe God's word is really clear about a lot of things. But there's a lot of things that I'm for the for list is probably longer than the against list right so so don't get me wrong we need to stand on truth and uphold biblical convictions but but the church is not in the position you are not in the position to just sit on judgment towards lost people if if you have people in your oikos they don't know jesus you cannot expect them to 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 live the to live out the ethical teachings of Jesus. You can't expect them to to share the same values that you uphold to because the Bible is your source of truth. So when it comes to being critical and and judgmental, I just think that's just kind of like a a quick little side note caveat. Like, as the church, we got to be careful how we witness to a lost and hurting world. We don't want to display or show Christ as, like, you know, being like this, 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 this angry God, you know, and, and we're just like, we're, we're judgmental, and we're critical, and, you know, the church is, in a lot of ways, the church is seen as, you know, against the world. I'm, we're not against the world. We're opposed to the, the world systems of beliefs, but we love people just like God loves people. Now, why, why are we critical? Why are we judgmental towards others? I'm gonna give you three, three points. Number one, insecurity. I think we're critical and we're judgmental towards other people because we ourselves are insecure. So what we do is we tear people down to build people up, and as we're tearing people down and we're building ourselves up, we're building our self-esteem. right? We're creating our own self-worth. We feel bad about ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves. So we're going to be nasty and negative and critical and judgmental. And we're just, going to, we're just going to be nitpicky. We're going to find things in other people's lives to nitpick about. As opposed to dealing with our own issues. Number two, guilt. And I think this is the big one. We see our sins in other people. Philip Brooks says this. We judge one another often. As a sign that the same sin lays latent within our own spirit. Okay, let's have a time of confession. You guys ready? Starting with me. Here we go. So here lately, and I can't remember what it was, but there was something that I was like complaining about in regards to somebody else. And I was complaining and complaining. It was like the Holy Spirit got really, really close to me and started whispering in my own ear, what about you, man? What about, what about, what about that same sin in your own life? And it was like, okay, checkmate, right? Holy Spirit got all over me. You ever been there where you're like, you're, you're, like, you're, you're judging or you're critical of someone, and then God moves in and he's like, you deal with the exact same problem. Why are you harping on them? You should be dealing with your own issue. I think we see our sin in other people. But the problem is we're blinded to our own sin. We see the sin in their life, but we don't see the sin in our life. Point number three, misunderstand the grace of God. I think we're critical and we're judgmental because we misunderstand the goodness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. We have been forgiven so much, have we not? God has forgiven us so much. But we, we find it so hard to extend that same grace, that same forgiveness to other people. If we're honest with ourselves about our need for God, about our lack of righteousness, about our own inadequacy, we, we would more easily pass mercy and grace towards other people. We have been forgiven. We, we have been forgiven so much and yet, we don't want to forgive very much. I mean, we have sinned against God. The list against God is out of this world, endless. It's, it's an infinite list. But the sin of other people against us is so small, so insignificant. You know, John Wesley, he was one of the great evangelists and, and, and preachers, and uh, he wore a long bow tie with long ends on a particular Sunday morning. And there was a woman after church that went up to John Wesley and, and she said, you know, your bow tie with those long ends is a sign of worldliness. So Wesley asked her for a pair of scissors and, and handed them to her. And he said, well, if you, don't, if you don't like them, you can cut them off. And she did. And then Wesley said, give me back the scissors. Stick out your tongue because your, your tongue is a sign of worldliness you have a spirit of criticism, right? So be careful how critical you are of other people, right? Matthew 7, verse 2. Let's pick up, pick up the passage. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's point two. The standard by which you judge others will be used against you. Now, this is a good truth to remember, right? Right? You dish it out, you're going to get it back. Verse 2 starts out by saying, for, it gives the ground, gives the reason for why we should not judge in the first place. And the principle that I think Jesus is trying to hammer into our minds is you get what you give. Another way of saying it, you reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. Life is like an echo. Life is like an echo in how you treat other people. There's a boomerang effect. You treat someone a certain way, it's going to come back at you. Like, if you extend mercy, you're going to receive mercy. If you extend forgiveness to someone that's hurt you, right, you're going to be forgiven. If you judge other people, if you make this kind of like, you know, your MO. This is who you are. This is what you do. Don't be surprised that people are going to come into your life and they're going to start judging you. The measure we use on others will be the measure others will use on us. Romans 14.4. Paul says, who are you? Underline that. Who are you to pass judgment? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I love how verse 4 starts out. Who are you to pass judgment? Anybody got an answer? There's no answer. We have no answer. I mean, who, who am I to pass judgment on another believer, right? Kind of puts things into perspective. The point here is who are we? When we think, oh, you know what, I'm justified. I can can be critical and nasty and negative and I can go after people and and judge them and condemn them. Then you have an inflated view of yourself. Because you feel like you're superior. They're inferior. You feel like you could step into their life and play the Holy Spirit and say, yeah, you need to correct some things in your life. Now we are going to talk about, at the end of the passage, Jesus does talk about going to believers. We are going to flesh that out. Um, at the end of verse 10, which I didn't read, we just read verse four, it says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's what Paul told uh, Romans. So we're all gonna stand before God. One judgment, right? We're gonna be accountable and we're not God, we're not the judge, we pretend to be God, we play the role, but here's the reality. God sees all, knows all, he has all the facts, he sees the big picture from the beginning to the end. And so we just need to be careful how, how, we, enter, how, do, how, do, how, how we relate to other, other believers. Now, the Romans had a fable, and the fable went like this. Every man has two purses, one to carry the faults of his neighbor in, one to carry his own faults in, the one in front to count and look at them, and the one behind to hide them. Here's what we do. We carry the bag of other people's faults in front of us, so that we can look at them, we can talk about them, we can slander their reputation, we could destroy their character, we could say things that are untrue, and then what we do is we take all of our junk, we take all of our sin, and we put it behind us so that it's hidden, you don't see it, no one else can see it, it's out of sight, and it can't be brought up. Jesus goes on in Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's point number three. In order to help others spiritually, we must And I think this is key. First, deal with our own faults. You know, Jesus is the master communicator. He he used lots of different genres. He used humor. He used hyperbole, which is exaggeration, to grab the attention of his hearers. And Jesus asked two questions. Why do you see the speck? And how can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye? Jesus is saying, man, you guys are pros at identifying other people's sins, their shortcomings, their their flaws, their failures, but you're blinded, you're blinded to your own sin and your own shortcomings. I came across uh, this survey, survey that was done many years ago amongst students, and they asked these students to, to rate themselves. So check this out. They asked the students, to rate their leadership ability. 70% of the students surveyed said that they were in the top 50 percentile. 22% said they were below average. They said, hey, rate your athletic ability. 60% said they were above average. 6% said they were below average. They asked the students to rate their ability to get along with others. And this is the big one. 60% said that they were in the top 25%. 25% of the students, of the students said that they were in the top 1%. There were 829,000 students surveyed. Zero Zero of the students said that they were below average when it comes to how they get along with other people. That's not just a mathematical problem. That's an honesty problem, right? Zero? Um, a big old egg? There, come on. See, here's the reality. We don't see ourselves the way we really are or the way other people see us. We exaggerate the faults of others We minimize the seriousness of our own sin. Jesus, he sets up this beautiful contrast, this beautiful imagery, right? Speck versus a log. Now a speck, a piece of fine dust or like a grain of sand, right? So just get that in your brain, like little, dinky, insignificant. But then you've got the log, right? This large, ginormous object, it's the word "log" actually in the Greek. It's actually the word for the main beam in a floor or for a roof. So we're not talking like a two by four. We're talking like one of these beams, Jack. Like these big old honking beams. Beams, right? That's what we're talking about. So, um, so the point is, the sin of the critic is much bigger than the one who's being criticized. So in order to see the speck in someone's eye, you have to be close and personal. Sometimes we're so busy inspecting someone else's spiritual life rather than tending to our own spiritual life. You know, the second question in verse 4 is, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and then there is the log in your own eye, right? It's not enough just to see it. You want to point it out. You want to remove it. What you want to remove is insignificant compared to what you have in your own eye. It's like, it's like if I had a just a massive beam bulging out from my eye. Blood is profusely dripping on the ground. And there's pus everywhere, and it's, it's crusty, it's infected, it's nasty, it's gnarly, it's gross. And then I go to someone, I got this massive beam that's just like penetrating the, the cranium of my brain. And I go to someone and I'm like, hey, let me get, let me get the little fine dust, that little, little fine piece of grain of sand out of your eye. It's like hypocrisy. This is what Jesus is saying. He's like, this is full on hypocrisy. If, if you're struggling with a beam of, of, of lust, but you go to someone who has a speck or a grain of sand of lust and you're trying to correct them. Or you're struggling with a beam of pride and you're going to someone who has a a grain of pride in their life. Or what? maybe it's greed. You got this beam of, of, of materialism sticking out of your eye. It's noticeable a million miles away from people around you. But when you spot it in someone else, you're quick to go to them and correct them and get them right. Ephesians 4:15 says rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So how should we speak, communicate to one another? Here's how we're we're called to speak. Speak the truth in love. Let me give you two examples. Truth without love isn't really truth. What do I mean by that? If you're all truth and no love, then your message is going to be cold. It's going to be self-righteous you're going to be narrow-minded. You're going to be judgmental. This is exactly what's happening in the text, right? It's all truth but no love. It's about exposing other people. In the end, in the end, it's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you look superior. The next one is love without truth isn't really love. Now, if you're all loving and you're not truthful, you know what that is? I think it's weak, and I think it's cowardly. Here's why I say that. The most loving thing you could ever do is to speak truth into someone else's life. I can't tell you how many people that I've had counseling sessions with, men that were married, had kids, Found out they're having an affair. The loving thing for me to do as a friend, as a pastor, is to say, hey, this ain't right. You're in sin. You need to fix this. You need to repent. You need to tell your wife. You need to get this right in your life. That's a loving thing to do. When you see someone that's engaged in willful, habitual sin, God calls us to step in with love, with kindness, with grace, The most loving thing you could do sometimes is speak the truth into someone else's life. You know, when people say, well, I love them too much to tell them the truth, then you don't love them. Because if you really did love them, you would tell them the truth. The most loving thing to do is to stand on conviction, and in a culture of compromise and a culture that is marked by postmodernism, you know, you make up your truth, I'll make up my truth, you know, there's multiple paths up the mountain, we're all gonna get to God. The most loving thing that you can do as a Christ follower is to say, no, actually, there's only one path up the mountain, and it's through Jesus. His life, death, burial, resurrection is all that matters. And you can experience Heaven, you can't experience eternal life unless you know Jesus. Proverbs twenty-seven, five to six: Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend; profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I love that one-liner. Better, better is open rebuke than hidden love. It, it is it is better for you to be on the receiving end, right? of rebuke or it is it is better for you to be the the deliverer of truth and good news than to hide you know this s- supposed love that you have for somebody matthew 7 verse 5 jesus goes on he says you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye so jesus says you're a hypocrite you know jesus loves integrity he he hates hypocrisy And so he gives us two action steps. Action step number one, basically Jesus is saying, deal with your sin first, right? Deal with the log in your own eye, right? And and then you can see more clearly. You'll be spiritually fit, able to detect a struggle, something in someone else's life. And you can go not to sit in judgment on them, but to go help them. This is the whole point. It's about helping them. Galatians chapter 6 flushes this truth out. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself. See, keep watch on yourself, right? That's another way of saying, hey, deal with the log in your own eye. Least you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The teachings of Christ, okay? For if, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So Paul's saying if someone is caught like in a trap, the trap of sin, you as a believer should go and restore that believer back into fellowship with God. Go to them. And and he says, how do how do we do that? How do we go to another believer and say, "Hey, you know what? I, man, I'm concerned. I see this in your life and I'm here to help you. I'm I love you." And this I don't think this habitual sin in your life is what God wants in your life and That's what it means to go in a spirit of gentleness. You're not a sniper for Christ, you're not going, you know, you're not coming in hot and heavy, you're not harsh, you're not critical, you're not standing in judgment, you're not saying, boy, God's never gonna forgive you over this one. No, you go with gentleness, you go with love, right? You go to bear a burden with them, not to heap more burdens on them, amen? You go to carry the burden, you go to help them, you go be like Christ for them, And and, and Paul says, listen, if, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So be careful. Watch yourself. You know, the word restore in the Greek means like setting a bone. So if you've ever broken a bone, arm or leg or something, when you go see the doctor, what do you want the doctor to do? You want the doctor, number one, to be knowledgeable about how to fix the problem, right? Okay, that's the first thing. You open, you're going to a smart, knowledgeable doctor. They know what they're doing. Number two, when you identify the problem in your life, the doctor, you want the doctor to gently touch that which is broken. To grab, not to grab, but to touch maybe an arm that's broken. The idea here is setting a bone, like so that the bone could heal. The whole point of going to someone is so that they can heal spiritually. You're not going in, like their arm, spiritually their arm's broken, you're not going in to whack that thing, right? That's, that's going to be painful. And, you know, they're probably not going to be friends with you again, right? But you want to go in with a balm of grace, a balm of healing. You want to come in and, and love on them and say, this is, this is not right. You're in sin. God loves you. And, and point them to Christ. Action two, seek to restore your brother. So the first action is deal with your own sin. And then action two, restore your brother, right? To restore them. You know, Jesus doesn't say leave them hanging. Well, too bad, you shot yourself in the foot. You know, it's your problem. No, that's not the attitude we should have as believers. We should want to get involved. You know, here's, here's what I've seen over doing a few decades of ministry. God called me to the ministry when I was 15 years old. I got saved when I was like 12. And I have seen over several decades of doing ministry that people do not want to get involved in the lives of other people that are struggling with temptation, that are hurting, that need help. This is not how God has designed the body. God has designed the body. We are members one of another. We are interconnected. A body needs all body parts, just like the body of Christ. We need each other. And so when one body part is missing physically, when when one person, one body part spiritually is missing, everyone suffers. So the, the call, the challenge is for us to check ourselves. For us to make sure that our life is right, not perfect but that we're pursuing Christ. We want Christ to be the treasure of our lives. We want to fight sin, we want to live for God. And then we, we put ourselves in a position, not of superiority, but coming alongside someone and saying, hey, let me help you. Hey, I see this in your life, right? And, and, and coming along as a friend and, and saying, hey, I'm concerned. And doing it in a spirit of gentleness and love. Now, I said earlier, one of the reasons why we're critical of others is Uh, because we misunderstand the grace of God. Let me flesh that out real quick, and then, then we'll be done. Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. He tells an earthly story to drive home a spiritual principle, and two men go to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, strict sect of Judaism, very religious, very pious. All righteousness is external, and then you have the tax collector, right? A publican you know, working for the Roman government, skimming money off the top, cheating his family, friends, neighbors, right? Co-workers, everything. Okay, maybe not co-workers, but collecting more money, right? And so the tax collector's bottom rung of society. They were looked down upon. So you have a religious person, and then you have a person that is deeply and immensely flawed, broken, sinful. Are you tracking? Okay. So... In a lot of people's eyes, it's like, you got a good person and you got a bad person. Like, get ready. Watch this. Luke 18. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And I just wonder if he was kind of like doing one of these, glancing over at the tax collector. You know, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he's pointing to works righteousness. He's pointing to how great he is. You know, I'm not like these people. I do these things. It's all about him. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee, let's begin with the Pharisee. He's the religious guy. He's the star of the show. He's the hero of the story. He's the center stage guy, right, teaching everyone. But Jesus makes the star of the show, the hero of the story, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. Jesus makes the good person lost, and he makes the bad person get saved. Now, we know the parable is directed at people who see themselves as righteous because look at verse 9. This is what Jesus said. He also told this parable, so he sets up the parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus is delivering this parable. And he's got his audience. They're listening, they're watching, they're hanging on to every word. And he's directing this parable towards people who ultimately are trusting in themselves. They're banking eternity on who they are and what they have done and their righteousness, right? Ultimately, they're righteous and and they treat other people who are not like them with contempt, not like them. Trying to connect it to what we've been talking about. The Pharisee comes bragging, you know, chest out, self-righteous, works righteousness. Oh, I'm not like all these other guys. You know, I'm honest and I'm just and I'm faithful to my spouse and all these things. And, and uh, you know, I tithe and I, you know, he's, he's highlighting. He's doing a highlight reel, right, of all the good things about his life. And the tax collector, he comes, he's not begging, he's broken. This guy's broken, man. He demonstrates faith righteousness. He doesn't see himself as worthy. Pharisee religious sees himself worthy. Tax collector, broken sinner sees himself unworthy. One's pointing to works righteousness. One's pointing to faith righteousness. One is self-righteous. One is self-condemned. One is prideful, soon be humbled. One is humble, will soon be exalted. The guy who comes in high, chest out, Bold, strong, he's gonna leave low. The guy who comes in low and humble, standing far off, looking down, not even looking into heaven, when that guy leaves, he's not leaving low, he's leaving high. This is the beauty, this is the beauty of the gospel. Be humble, recognize your spiritual condition. Be like the tax collector. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee stood and prayed, you know, with just, with just like a haughtiness, a very self-righteousness. He was oozing and dripping with just, you know, his own goodness. God, I'm thankful that I'm not like this tax collector. Self-righteous people think they're better than other people. Self-righteous people look down on other people. Self-righteous people, they... they um, Self righteous people, they don't have an inferiority complex. They have a superiority complex. They see themselves as better, more spiritual, more holy. They have it all together. Here's the deal we have a propensity to act like we have it all together. We do, all of us do. All of us do, including me. We act like we have it all together. Everything's tight. Everything's perfect. Everything's just, you know, spiritual. And, you know, we're not struggling. And we're not, you know, we're not struggling with anything. And, and, and we see ourselves as more spiritual than other people. Here's the problem with the Pharisee. Lots of problems I mentioned. But instead of assuming a position, being humble, and acknowledging his brokenness, you know what He did. He dismissed a person. He came and he said, it's a good thing I'm not like that guy. God can't accept that. God wants us to see ourselves as he sees us. We need to be like the tax collector. We're unworthy, we're broken, we're unrighteous. We're a condemned sinner who desperately is in need of God's amazing grace. We need to see And relish and and ponder and meditate and glory in in the truth and in the action of what God has done for us in Christ. When we see ourselves through the cross, we see the beauty of the cross. We see a good and glorious and awesome God. And the truth of the gospel will humble us. It will cause us to to have a heart filled with gratitude. And, And then here's the deal. We have the right perspective. We see God for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are. And then we leave, like the tax collector, we leave changed. And we go live in that grace. We live in that grace. Because when we're living in that grace, God gives us the perspective, the right perspective of who he is, who we are, and he gives us a right perspective of other people. So let's be the people that God has called us to be. Let's not be harsh, negative, critical, judgmental, condemning. Let's deal with our own sin first, and then let's jump into the game and let's help other people. Let's help other fellow believers as we're taking this journey with God, as we're walking with God. Let's help one another. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you, God, for this time of worship. Thank you for this morning. We can gather around uh, your word, and we can uh, grow together. God, I pray that, Lord, you would would help us to, God, grow in our Christ-likeness, Lord. Help us not to... Help us not to be fault-finding and critical and condemning of other people. Help us, Lord, to, to first deal with the, the log, the sinner the in our own eye, so that we can help a brother or sister in Christ with the speck in, in their eye. Lord, help us to be more like you in our speech, in our actions. Um, Lord God, I pray that you would do a work in our lives this morning that we would, we would see your goodness and your grace, and we would, we would approach you like the tax collector, and we would see ourselves as uh, unworthy. Help us, Lord, to um, to not have a, a superiority complex um, about other people. Help us, Lord, to uh, not be nitpicking, um, but Lord, help us to to really examine our own our own heart, our own lives, where we're at spiritually with you. Lord, help us to grow in this grace. Help us to be more like you, your son. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, and I pray that we would apply your word to our lives this week. We know that your Holy Spirit living within us can do and wants to do that work in us today and this week. May we yield to you, God. May we surrender to you. Uh, Be with our hearts, be with our, our tongues, be with our minds. And Lord, help us to be more like you. And we pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.